Open your Bibles to Genesis 29. The title of today's sermon is Sweet Discipline. And I know children are saying, is there such a thing? Kids dread receiving discipline. Most parents hate giving discipline. We actually live in a world that values freedom so much that it has become the freedom to be anything you want and to do anything you want. That's our highest value in this land. If you love somebody, you'll just let them be what they want to be. So why would I title this sermon, Sweet Discipline? Because without discipline, people grow into unbearable brats. Genesis 29 is a story about discipline. No one gets a literal whooping in the book of in Genesis 29. But there are other forms of discipline, and God often uses the difficult circumstances of life as a form of discipline. He is going to orchestrate Jacob's life and Leah's lives in such a way that they experience pain and frustration. They are forms of God's discipline, and it is rightly understood, sweet discipline. And my hope is that as you look at God's gracious work in the lives of Jacob and Leah, that you will better understand his loving hand in your own life. Instead of resenting his discipline, you will be thankful for it. And you will even learn how to submit up under it. We know that Jacob is living under God's hand of providence. We know that, that Jacob is under God's blessing. We know that because at the end of chapter 28, or actually sort of in the middle, verse 15, God tells Abraham, behold, I am with you. And will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. You see, God's commitment to be with Jacob and his commitment to bring Jacob back to enjoy the promised blessing implicitly implies discipline of Jacob. You didn't know that, did you? But it does. You see, because if you understand, and we've gone through the promises given to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob, it's not just that God would give you lots of good things. God weaves into that promise the promise that his people will be a blessing. That's very clear. In Jacob... As in Abraham and in Isaac before him, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And I'm telling you, 
as long as Jacob remains the man that he was in the previous chapters, he will not be a blessing to people around him. He is a man full of selfish ambition. He has learned how to lie and deceive on a regular basis. God has to change this. And it's interesting because even though I think Jacob is, is, as much as he knows, on a path of trying to follow God's command, he is going to do what God wants him to do here. Only God has a clear picture of who Jacob has to become. God is the only one who's perfectly pure and understands what it means to be unselfish and giving and faithful and true. God knows that. And so he's the one that is perfectly wise enough to know the goal that he's trying to produce in Jacob. Also, God is absolutely sovereign. So God is the only one who has enough power to overcome any resistance that might be in Jacob to actually being who he's supposed to be. So when God promises to give Jacob blessing, he is simultaneously committing himself to do whatever is necessary to make Jacob a blessing. You think about that. Because you're in that promise too. He's not just promised to give you blessing, he's promised to make you a blessing. Now, Jacob thinks that the plan is to go get a wife Head on home. That's what he thinks the plan is. He doesn't quite get that the plan is really more about him than about a destination. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and read the entire chapter, and then we'll come through and we'll walk through it as well. So get out your Bibles, Genesis 29, follow along with me. Then Jacob went on his journey. And came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is... Still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot. Until all the flocks are gathered together. And the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near, rolled the stone away or from the well's mouth, and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. 
Then Jacob kissed Rachel. Just a greeting, familiar, not anything necessarily romantic here. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob's sister, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go in to her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to be his daughter, to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also and loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son. And said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing May God bless the reading of his holy word. Now, I want to stress that I believe that Jacob, throughout this whole episode, is uh, trying to be obedient to God. His character is not perfect. He will fall short in many ways. But I think that he is not purposely in rebellion to God. He also thinks that the process of finding a wife will probably be a relatively simple process. Of course, God is uh, uh, with him, and so, of course, why wouldn't God, who's already just promised to be with him and to bless him, why would God not 
make the process of finding a wife relatively simple. Was it not simple when Abraham's servant went and got Rebekah? Relatively simple, right? So it should be something similar. It's kind of strange. In verses 2 through 8, Jacob comes to a well, but instead of just meeting Rachel, he meets these other shepherds. And they're there at this well, and you're asking yourself, what is the point of these shepherds in the story? There are three of them. We know that there are three of them. There is also a large stone lid over the covering of the well. And we know that the shepherds are sitting there waiting. They're just kind of hanging out. okay? But we're not really certain why they're hanging out. Now, we're told that the typical way things work was for shepherds to move the stone, get the water for their flocks, and put the stone back on. And the question becomes, why have these shepherds not done that? Some commentators say that they were just lazy. But I think they were waiting on Rachel. Jacob comes up. He asks them if they know Laban. They say, yeah, we know Laban. Very familiar with Laban. He's doing great. Oh, by the, by the way, here comes his daughter right now. Isn't that a coincidence? Now, young men, if you like someone, if you're interested in someone, you find ways to get close to them. And here are these shepherds, just conveniently staying nearby the well, waiting because it's impossible to water their sheep and then let somebody else water their sheep later. No, we've got to wait until everybody gets here all at once. When Robin and I met each other in Yellowstone, she had, we were both uh, maids in the park, working in the, in, the, uh, like, um, in the cabins, cleaning cabins, and uh, her vacuum cleaner broke. Well, that was an opportunity for me I'll let her share my vacuum cleaner, was what I said. And, of course, everybody kind of rolled their eyes and said, oh, okay. So, you know, I was hoping that they wouldn't fix that vacuum cleaner because I wanted to spend time with her. These shepherds, I believe, are waiting on Rachel. In a few verses, we will be told that she is quite a catch. And think about this. Why is it that Jacob wants to send the other shepherds away? Don't you guys think you need to get moving? You know, get out of here. He wants alone time with Rachel. The other shepherds don't want to leave. Oh, no, we got to wait till everybody gets here. When when, uh, Rachel does come up, what does Jacob do? He displays his prowess and his strength. I mean, this is the Jacob that we thought was kind of wimpy before. Now he's taking this stone, and he's, you know, several people usually move it, and he moves it all by himself. Think he's trying to impress this girl? There's a, I believe that the shepherds provide a competition to Jacob. Verses 9 through 12, the speed at which events unfold is breathtaking. Uh, it's amazing what love can do, right? He, he moves the stone, comes, explains to her everything. She runs off. It's just like boom, boom, boom. Things moving very fast. 
We do notice that Jacob doesn't pause and give thanks to God, and he doesn't take time to pray. I'm not saying that this, don't make too much of this like he's just some not trusting in God at all, but I do think that he's young and ambitious and probably doesn't have the wisdom of the servant that previously came to get Rebekah. So he's just, he's just plowing forward, right? But as soon as Laban enters the picture, everything slows down. Notice there's another contrast with the servant in chapter 24. The servant was unwilling to receive any hospitality until the purpose for his journey was made known and he had secured his bride. Jacob takes a month of uh, working with uh, Laban before he even brings up the bridal uh, offer. Also, I find it rather interesting in God's providence that Isaac, when he sends Jacob, doesn't actually give him many camels, great things. He pretty much sends Jacob all alone. I thought that was interesting that that occurred that way. Isaac was a wealthy man, could have sent things with him. Who's in control of all these circumstances? God. Remember, it's Jacob's God who has promised Jacob blessing. You see, God intends for Laban to take advantage of Jacob. Did you hear that? He intended that. But here's the kicker. He didn't do it to punish Jacob. He's already promised blessing to Jacob. I find it so interesting how some of the commentators were so quick to say, oh, poetic justice. Jacob gave it to to Esau, so God's going to give it to Jacob. No. You see, God is committed to Jacob's blessing. And he is using this situation, as painful as it might be, not to get back at Jacob, but to actually uh, forge new character in Jacob. Now Laban sees very quickly that Jacob is a good worker. He wants to keep Jacob. Uh, Laban's not thinking of God's promises to Jacob. He just says, man, this is a good deal. I like this guy. He's, he's, he's good for me. He says, man, what do I need to pay you? He's thinking cash. Actually, he's probably thinking camp, um, sheep. But he's thinking some form of property. Instead, Jacob says, I want Rachel. Now, in order to understand this, the narrator says, man, we've got to break in. We've got to help you understand this. So in verses 16 and 17, we get the narrator's statement of Rachel and Leah. He says that, There's two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So we're only told two things about each of them. One is older, one is younger. One has weak eyes. One is, in every way, conceivable way, attractive. That's what we got. The younger one is more attractive. I want to stress... Outward beauty is not a crime. We've made that an idol in our society. I understand that. But outward beauty in and of itself is not a crime. On the whole, the Bible is favorable to beauty. Now, certainly it can be deceptive. You can can think more about outward beauty than you care about the heart, and that would be terrible. God wants you to care about the inward heart. That's more important. But nothing is said in these verses about the inward heart of Leah. 
Leah is a woman of character. Rachel is shallow. It doesn't say anything like that. It just says one is beautiful, more beautiful than the other. Now, it was customary in that time and place that the older sister would marry first. Verse 18. Jacob loved Rachel. He said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Now, the exchange, these two verses are full of subtlety. This is why when you read it, it's very hard to sometimes get it because you don't always get the subtleties of what's happening. Laban's response tells us a lot. Laban believes that giving Rachel to Jacob is the better option. Better than what? I'm convinced that he's saying better than all the other suitors that want Rachel. And I think... He sees Jacob as the man who will be most beneficial to him. That's what he's concerned about. Now, Jacob, I believe, also understands very clearly that there is a protocol of the older gets married to the before the younger. I think, you know, it sounds like in the text that he's like surprised, but and there is a surprise that's going on, but I think he understands this because Jacob gives. Laban a huge amount of work in order to get this bride. Seven years? Are you kidding me? That is a lot. Okay? So he gives, he's willing to do this, and I think it's for several reasons. One, I think Jacob knows that many people are interested in Rachel. I think he also knows that by being betrothed to Rachel, that she will be taken off the table, so to speak. You know, it's declared she's betrothed to Jacob. So I think Laban and Jacob are both hoping that other suitors will come in and marry Leah. And I think Jacob also thinks if it doesn't happen, I've given so many years that Laban will break protocol and let me marry the younger first. So that's what happens, okay? So either way, seven years is a long time. They kick it down the road and say, we're not going to worry about this. Seven years, I'll just take the labor, fine. The end of the seven years comes. Jacob comes in, give me Rachel. Jacob has done his part. He's worked hard. He's kept his side of the bargain. He's even done it happily because it's so in love with Rachel. He has been patient. Now, certainly a God who tells Jacob that I love you and I am with you and I will bless you and I will bring you back to the land, certainly that God will give Jacob his bride so he can get out of there, right? No. At the end of seven years, Jacob goes to Laban expecting him to follow through on his promise. He's hoping that even though that Leah has not found a husband, that, that Laban will make an exception to the protocol. The wedding moves forward. Now I want to stop just for a second, and I want you to just think about all of the different providential things that God could have done to make this easier. 
right? So, number one, God could have made Leah more beautiful than Rachel. None of this would have even occurred. Or he could have at least made Jacob more attracted to Leah. He doesn't do that. God could have provided another suitor for Leah. Right? Um, God might have made Laban an honorable man. God doesn't do any of those things. Why not? Because God is committed to sweet discipline for Jacob. So they have the feast. They get together. Right? And, and how, ex- how this deception is pulled off is even more unbelievable than Jacob when he deceives Isaac. I mean, it's like, are you kidding me? For instance, they gather everybody together. They have a big party. What do you do? You have, I don't know, I'm not bringing our uh, current uh, ways we do weddings into theirs. But, you know, in our day, we have, we have like bridesmaids, right? And Leah and Rachel are sisters. So don't you think that the sister of the bride will be present at the wedding? Don't you think Jacob, and since Jacob is in love with Rachel... You know, you think, okay, where's Leah? Why is she not here? Oh, maybe she's sick. Okay, so that's one thing. Then the veil can only do so much. I mean, the idea that, I mean, I've heard commentaries say that Jacob was drunk. I mean, they come up, I don't know, but, but I think what we're supposed to say is this should not have worked. Why does it work? God's providence just like Jacob's deceiving of his dad, God's providence. Of course, Jacob is angry at Laban the next day. I mean, you would be mad too, right? The woman of your dreams is not the one you're married to. And Laban understands. This is is the craftiness of Laban. He understands how much Jacob loves Rachel. So he knows that if he can get uh, Jacob to be faithful to his promise with Leah, that he can use uh, Rachel as a kind of a card to make sure that that happens. And he says, oh, if you just finish out your week with Leah and you remain faithful to her, I'll give you Rachel too. Now, I don't think Laban is doing this out of spite. I think Laban is doing this because he is a man who doesn't understand women. Really, I mean, I do. I think he thinks, oh my goodness, I don't want Leah to just go her whole life and not get married. So I'm going to work out a way that she gets married. Little does he think, uh, possibly my daughter will not want to be married to a guy who is in love with his sister, her sister. He doesn't think that. He just thinks, oh, this is a good deal. She's get, they're both married. It's great. Laban's all business. That's all he thinks about. He has no understanding of what's happening here. But I want to be clear, too. You know, Leah also was desperate. Do you know how easily it would have been for her to break the ruse? Uh, Sorry, Jacob, I'm not Rachel. That's all she would have had to say. And it would have been broken. So in some sense, she's compliant in this. And I think she's compliant because she is desperate as well. 
Now, you would expect happily ever after. That is not what occurs here. Why are things not working out for Jacob? God just wants to stick it to him? Before we answer that in Jacob's life, I want us to step back and look at Leah's perspective. You might say, oh, Leah is not central to the story. Her feelings don't matter. And I think that would be wrong. I actually think that Leah may be the center of this story. Leah knows that she is not Jacob's first choice. And I don't think there's a woman alive who wants to be married with a man who loves somebody else. Also, um, Leah is probably afraid. How would you feel if you knew that you were not as attractive as your sister? How would you feel if you grow up and all of the men in the town are chasing after your sister and passing you by? How would you feel if, they, if, if Rachel is taken off the table in terms of all the other suitors and seven years go by and still a suitor doesn't come to you? And I know that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and, but, but we all want to be loved. We want someone to love us for who we are. You can't read this story without just your heart going out for Leah. And then you get this distorted, like forced, manipulated marriage, and now you're stuck in a lifelong marriage with someone who doesn't love you? Does God care at all about Leah? I mean, think about the way people will talk in our lives. Well, I've experienced this pain, and this has occurred, and this person didn't love me, and this happened here. I believe God must hate me. It is not... If you're going to put a title on Leah at this point, you would call her Leah the Unloved. It's a question whether her dad loves her. Certainly Jacob doesn't love her. The other men of the town don't love her. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. Now, the text could have said, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, it's purposely using hated. Because this is the same language that occurred when God spoke to Rebekah and told her, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. I know that the word hating is something that's developed later in Scripture. But this idea that God chose one and not the other, that's exactly what's happening here. You see, Jacob chooses Rachel because 
she is attractive to him. If that is why God chooses people to save them, we're in trouble. God is making a statement here. He is favoring the one who is unloved. His choice of redemption is not based on outward strength, outward smarts, outward beauty. He chooses because he chooses. And God loves to love the unloved. In fact, Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians, and he says, you know, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you are here today and you are a Christian, you are a part of God's team in the sense that he has called you to himself to redeem you, it is not because of your smarts, your beauty, your strength, none of those things. And God lets all of this happen to Leah. How much of our lives is striving to be loved by someone in this world. God wants Leah to find her true peace and happiness in his love for her. This is not a lesson that is quickly learned. You see, God has mercy towards Leah. He opens her womb. She, she, first step, she acknowledges that God does see the, 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 the pain that is in her life and she names her son accordingly. The Lord has looked upon my affliction. But notice what she says right after that. For now my husband will love me. So she still, God has been merciful to her. She, she recognizes that he's loved her in some sense. That's the first step. But she's still craving after the affection of Jacob. I don't even think she knows that she's saying this. She conceives him, you know, this breakneck speed again. We're going fast again. She conceives and bears another son. This time she's, she says, oh, he's heard my cry. God is being faithful to her. She she conceives and bears another son. And still her heart is set on the fact that, oh, would Jacob be attached to me? I want to win Jacob's love. Because we're consumed as people for the love of other humans. And while Levi is, uh, uh, his name means attached, and Leah is hoping for the attachment to Jacob, God is the one communicating that he is attached to her. So finally in verse 35, she again conceives and bears a son. And this time, what does she say? Praise the Lord. 
she calls his name Judah. And this seems to be that finally in this fourth child, instead of just seeking after Jacob's love, she finally just praises the Lord. I don't know if this is ongoing. She probably still struggles chasing after Jacob's love as time goes on. But, but at this point, she just says, Lord, thank you. You have loved me. And that is enough. You see, at any point, God could have changed Jacob's demeanor to better suit Leah. But then that would have missed the point. Because he's trying to teach Leah the lesson, find your joy and peace in me. Is he angry at Leah? Is he trying to stick it to Leah too? No. God loves her. He's applying sweet discipline to her life. It's not poetic justice. Leah is favored by God. It is from her womb that the Messiah comes. So how do we apply this story to our own lives? Well, the first thing is you must believe in Jesus Christ. It's awesome that we've got Juliet declaring her faith in Jesus today. You have to believe in Jesus Christ. If you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, you do not have a right to call on God as Father. The wrath of God has not been removed from you. The pains in your life are just foreshadows of an eternal hell. But if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of God's wrath has been poured out upon Jesus Christ, then you have a right to, be, to call upon God as your Father. And you have a right to believe that everything that happens in your life, no matter how painful, or how difficult, or how frustrating, is being used by God for your good. That's what Romans 8.28 says. Don't buy into the lie that when you are facing pain and suffering and challenging, challenging things in life, that God must hate you. It's just not true. All of the promises of blessing are given to all who are united to Jesus Christ. Even when we are unloved by this world, God's love is sure. Even when others seem to be scheming us out of good things in this life, God's love is sure. No one can rob you of the blessing of God. Not governments, not other people. God is holding your blessing eternally in heaven. Now, Try to get a little balance here on this. Some change in your life occurs out of your direct, I'm going to change. And I think we should strive to be different people. Oh, I want to be a more of a man of prayer. I, I, want, to, I want to, um, to quit being angry at people or, you know, whatever. I mean, you're striving to do the right thing. But the older I get the more I believe that the forging of character 
comes because of God's hand of providence. He's doing something that you could never figure out for yourself. Do you believe that? Jesus is committed to making you perfect. That's a good thing. Trust in that. Now I have one more lesson that I want to give you. It's a little bit going off, but it's, I think, important one in our day. The law of God makes very clear in Leviticus 18 that a man is not to marry the sister of of his wife. I believe that that Leviticus law was actually written with the situation of Rachel and Leah in mind. I tell you this because so often in our day, people think that God's law is restricting and it's brutal and it's mean and he just doesn't want us to be happy, those kind of things. Well, I'm telling you that it is after the lifelong struggle of friction between Leah and Rachel, and you're going to see it worked out in the coming weeks, that God says, this is not a good idea. (laughs) He is trying to prevent his people from going through pain and suffering. That's the purpose of the law. He's not trying to make us miserable. The world will tell you that God is unloving Because he does not approve of premarital sex, homosexuality, adultery, transgenderism, open marriages. Oh no, those, you know, God must hate us for that. We got to get rid of that kind of God. Nothing could be further from the truth. God establishes his law with our best interest in mind, and our culture is foolish to throw it out. Laban obviously thought it wouldn't have been much of a problem for Jacob to have two wives. Gave them both away. But at the same time that we as a church must uphold God's law and his standard, because it is a good standard, and we must not turn away from that standard, I believe it is a powerful and a wonderful truth That when God begins to establish his people, he does it through dysfunction. Do you understand that? He doesn't say, give me the most pure people and then I'll start building my church. He builds his church with the unloved, with the dysfunctional, with the people's lives that are all messed up. Because that's who our God is. We should be striving towards God's holy standard, but as we do that, we should remember that as people walk through these doors, they have lives that are messed up. And if we can't be a a balm of healing and hope to them to bring them from that by the grace of God, we shouldn't exist. We are God's children because God loves the unlovable. And God loves to take on the difficult cases. Remember that. He doesn't just try to save the people who are almost there, but just not quite. He loves to go after the person that no one else could have ever thought could be redeemed. 
And we need to remember that as a church. Come to the Father. Come to Jesus. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son. That's the message that we have. And if you do, I cannot promise anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ a life free of struggle. You will spend your whole life struggling. But I can tell you that our God knows how to save sinners. He knows how to apply sweet discipline to his people. Amen. If you would please open your hymnal to number 128.